Sex, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the speculative interdimensional vehicle, Sex in Space. Its mission, to explore new points of view, to seek out fresh opinions, to boldly go where so many have gone before, and still somehow manage to totally miss the point. Subscribe to Sex in Space, wherever quality podcasts are found. Hi there, I'm Toshi and welcome back to Sex in Space. We're here continuing to explore sex across all of its infinite dimensions. I hope everyone out there is doing wonderfully. Whether you're a newcomer to this podcast or an experienced navigator of our cosmic conversations, we're excited to have you join us. If you're tuning in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or any other platform, we sincerely thank you for joining us. Don't forget to show your support by liking, rating and subscribing. For more great Sex and Space content, head on over to TikTok and Instagram, where you can search for us using our handle at sexandspace.com. That's sexandspace, D-O-T-C-O-M. We love hearing from our listeners and engaging with our community, and your feedback means the world to us. We're all on this journey together. So please feel free to reach out in any way that you like. Now let's dive into a fantastic interview. For this episode, Jane spoke with Professor Gioji Ravulo. Gioji is the Professor and Chair of Social Work and Policy Studies in the Sydney School of Education and Social Work at the University of Sydney. His research, writing, and areas of interest include health and well-being, youth, diversity and inclusion, decoloniality, and educational leadership. He's been involved and invited to author over 70 publications, including peer-reviewed journal articles, scholarly book chapters, research reports, and opinion pieces. Let's jump in. Today, um, we are here to talk together um, about a really important subject. Um, It seems increasingly um, politicised subject, and it's being seconded and used politically at the moment, certainly in the US and in New Zealand. I'm not sure if that's true here as much. Um, But gender has become one of those subjects that's now been hijacked. And in that process of hijacking, there's an act of deliberate forgetting going on um, around the diversity of understanding of gender, how it came about that we came into this world of even imagining there were just two possibilities. And then we stumbled across your amazing work. I'm like, oh, here's an expert. Let's talk. So um, we'd love to hear today and, and talk about your work, how you got there, uh, where you're at with it. So maybe um, some background. How did you come to this space to be doing mm. this important work? Well, Nisa and Bulavanaka and G'day. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Great to be sharing and holding space with you all. Uh, we're here on campus at the University of Sydney in my office we're on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation, I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. For me, it's within that context of diversity, understanding that there are different ways of seeing the world, like our First Nations communities here in Australia, that I was also challenged to see the world from my Pacific Indigenous heritage. Um, my father's Indigenous Fijian, my mother's uh, Anglo-Australian, and so for me, I grew up seeing different versions of the world, the white way of looking at things, but then also the indigenous Fijian way of looking at things. So a lot of my ongoing 
work reflects those challenges mm. uh, of trying to navigate Western white perspectives around gender and sexuality and the areas of diversity that also then potentially comes from specific Indigenous perspectives that mm. we had prior to colonisation. That prior to colonisation is a really important tightly packed statement. So for the benefit of our listeners, can we have a conversation about what that means? So the Pacific Islands were colonised across the 1800s by primarily uh, Western nations, the United Kingdom or British Empire uh, and French uh, and other European forces. And during the, co- the colonisation process, they also brought Western missionaries with them. And it was through the introduction of faiths like Christianity that we learnt in the Pacific Islands to do away with a lot of our traditional ways of knowing and doing, being, becoming. And as a result of being taught the white Western way of looking at even our gender and sexuality, we did away with a lot of those diverse perspectives and practices Mm. that we were implementing prior to colonisation. And so what was the pre-colonial or pre-colonised view on gender within Pacific nations? I'm, I'm not assuming it's the same everywhere no, across right. such diverse communities. But that's right. So some of the, some of the similar things that we were seeing in, in some of the Pacific countries around gender diversity but even sexual diversity was that it was fluid and flexible. Hmm. The preface and premise to our collectivist cultures was around reciprocity. So your ability to be included in society was by virtue of you reciprocally giving back to your own community, irrespective of your gender expression or your sexuality or any of the other areas of diversity that we've come to label today. So what did that look like? It looked like where people were able to carry out their gender expression and sexuality without the stigma or shame Mm. that we see today. It wasn't definitive labels. And a lot of our gender and sexual expressions were based on our social interactions with self and others. Even sexual activity was undertaken from a social point of view rather than a sexual point of view. So people's ability to have sex with others wasn't placed from a morality point of view. It was based on a social point of view, that I'm having this physical contact with you as part and parcel of my ability to connect with you socially. Mm. One of the things that's going on at the moment is young people who are trying to understand their own sense of gender and sexuality and or um, as not either or Mm. and not as more fluid are struggling within a dominant cultural framework that says you have to choose. Mm -hmm. And therefore, sometimes what's happening is because there's no space to be ambiguous, to to just be, then either or is sometimes manifesting as having to firmly locate and therefore this really hot label at the moment, transition into a chosen space rather than have the freedom of bigger space or, or, or not sitting in a space. I agree. 
this is where we really focus on the binary yeah. and how things need to be this or that, male or female, yeah. straight or gay. There's no in-between. And unfortunately, that's where we create a lot of tensions yeah. associated with being able to be fluid and flexible around even our gender norms. If you look at some of the key theories that we've been looking at and that's been built upon over the many years, for example, uh, Raywin Connell's work on hegemonic and toxic masculinities. Uh, Raywin is actually part of this, uh, oh, okay. this school, the Sydney School of Education and Social Work, so shout out to Raywin. Um, a lot of their work is about this idea of, you know, this is this is a particular way of doing things and we, 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 we reiterate particular norms to the detriment of our well-being. And I agree with that. I think within Western and white contexts, we continue to perpetuate that particular way of doing things. And as a result, we then create, I believe, more stress and strain on people's ability to develop pro-social attitudes towards diversity. Absolutely, and that stress um, manifests in the numbers um, within the LGBTQ plus community, um, which is um, you know, disproportionate outcomes in across the board. You know, depression, separation from families. Um, there's just so many big numbers that are headlining around this stress of not belonging, not feeling able to belong. I, I have friends at the moment who are, who are trying to navigate this with their young people and be supportive. Um, but there's not much information out there about even how to find a framework to make sense of this. You know, because again, the dominant model, our media um, and the culture that we're in just puts it straight back into a binary male-female, that's it, conversation. And then trans is kind of uh, as if there was um, a movement happening in between, there's still no space for fluidity. Right? That's right. We're so obsessed with labels. I am. Labels this, label that. Like we just think that things have to fit into a box. Yes. And that is unhelpful. That is so, so unhelpful. And you're right. Then when we look at the trans community, we go, we can't place that. So it must be wrong. Yeah. Uh, and that then continues to perpetuate the marginalisation of our trans community. And the utter invisibility of our intersex community, mm -hmm. which isn't even mm -hmm. on the curriculum at school. Mm -hmm. It's just not there. I agree. And this insistence by some very otherwise smart people um, that there are biologically just mm. two choices mm. when we know that's not true. That's right. I, I, I don't understand how that isn't called out a lot because it's just actually incorrect. That's right, because biologically, the prevalence of intersex is a reality. It is. Right? That, uh, intersex people exist. And one of my favourite stats, albeit it's a little headlining, but it's great, is there are as many redheads in the world as there are intersex people and vice versa. And that at least makes people go, oh, because otherwise you get, again, seemingly smart people um, who intellectualise it and make it a small number. Oh, it's only less than 2% of the population, and that's millions of people, lest we forget. That's a, a huge number of people yeah. who exist, but we just don't allow for that because we wrote that out when we started to categorise. Completely agree. And I think through the writing out process, we have then created shame and stigma. Yes. I know from my own lived experience that I have uh, family 
that are intersex. Right. And they were born uh, many decades ago. And yeah, they were socialized not to be that. Right. They went through all these particular processes and they're still being medicated not to be that. So we continue to perpetuate the stigma and shame. Yeah. So the categorization that happened, it wasn't always with us. It hasn't, it's, it feels like it's a universal kind of truth like gravity. It's not. It started, um, what, two, 300 years ago. Um, and it was the result of um, a, a strong desire to make sense of the world. It's very human, you know, like, oh, that thing, it keeps eating people. It must be a tiger, right? Okay, let's worry about them, you know. <laughs> like, we really need to understand, but it's like that skill has become um, a, a pathology in terms of how we've used it within culture to try and separate things out and and this othering that mm. goes on. You know, the, 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 the end result is, is and that plays out everywhere, right? It does. I think it plays out even more with Western modernity. <laughs> I think that yeah. in Western society, we strive to be the dominant culture globally. Hmm. And I think if you look, Examples are, as we continue to look at this notion of development or regional development across the Pacific and our Pacific Islands, from Australia and New Zealand point of view, I think we continue to play somewhat a paternalistic role in the Pacific. We go in and we'll give you money, but we expect this and do it on our terms in the context of why we're giving you these funds or these monies or we're helping you. At no time do we ever think that such people in such countries like the Pacific actually have any form of autonomy or self-determination. Again, it's always based on a Western way of looking at development. Yeah, and, and that they have the wisdom to work out what they need for themselves. Totally. Mm. And that's been a big part of my work as well, this idea of decolonization. So decolonization is a concept that calls out the status quo that we find in Western society. It calls out another concept that we use called whiteness, this idea that white is right, West is best. Mm. And through the decolonial approach, we are trying to look at diverse ways of looking at the world around us. So rather than just saying that there's only one way of looking at sexuality, one way of looking at gender, it's looking at multiple ways. And a lot of my ongoing work is about yeah, I was going to come to that next because you've just been right through the Pacific visiting different countries. Yeah. And so um, can you talk us through some of what you found on, on your travels? Yeah, so I've been commissioned by the Pacific Sexual and Gender Diversity Network, also known as PSGDN, to undertake <laughs> yep, to undertake some research uh, on the lived experience of mm. PIDSOGS, so Pacific Island, uh, Islanders that are from sexual and gender diverse backgrounds mm-hmm. uh, so that includes you know traditional lgbtiqa plus communities to understand what is happening in space and play so i spent uh, uh, a couple of weeks in july uh, doing some color some focus groups with representatives across the community and uh, it was a great opportunity for me to from me um, uh, talk with lbq women so there's been bisexual queer women and trans people and intersex people Mm. uh, and non-binary about their lived experience. We wanted to look at what was it like living in the Pacific, coming from these respective backgrounds, 
The other key thing that we also wanted to highlight was what are some of our strengths? What are some of our capabilities? What are some of the awesome things that society more broadly, including Pacific communities, can learn from queer communities in the region? And what were some of the findings? Are you able to talk about that yet? Yeah, so yeah. I imagine you're working so, it up. <laughs> yeah, we're still doing them. Yeah. Heading off to Samoa in a couple of weeks to do similar uh, Talanoas focus groups. Uh, and we've also, we're also just recently launched a survey that is also oh, okay. getting... People from uh, Pits OGS, LB, LGBTIQA plus communities to uh, share with us their, their lived experience as well. So, so far what we've found is that there is still the ongoing discrimination that happens across different settings, including health settings, mm. where people aren't able to engage with service providers to support their health and well-being because of a lack of understanding and appreciation for the health needs of gender diverse and sexual diverse people. So Is that, that health services that are coming from a Western model? Yes, right. that are implemented in the Pacific right. itself. So a lot of our Western, as a lot of our models or health models in the islands are very much geared towards a Western frame. And so we're finding that a lot of the time our communities, our queer communities aren't able to access those services safely because also this idea of um, stigma again and shame that has been introduced in our cultures because of, you know, conservative uh, church faiths um, that continue to pervade such health services and systems. So we heard a lot of very, very um, challenging stories um, about people going to health services and being told that they can't be helped because of who they are. We also heard quite a bit of uh, uh, unfortunate uh, happenings and dealings with uh, the law and police practices that continue to create tensions for our communities. Uh, So it was was full on. It was full on hearing a lot of those particular challenges. And again, these, these perspectives and practices have come from Western modernity. In the work that you've done, have you, I mean, it's it's the worst legacy of colonisation, religion and its impact in the Pacific, I think. How do you go about finding space to reconsider when you're in communities who've got a lot of investment in those frameworks? Yeah, for me, that's why we also focused on the successes and all the resilience in our communities as well. So one of the key things that um, I was hearing from our communities was a strong desire to continue to contribute. So it goes back to what I was saying there before Mm. around in a lot of our Pacific cultures, irrespective of your gender or sexual expression, you matter because of the way in which you reciprocally give to your family, to the community. So we heard from our LGBTIQA plus community members who were saying, I would turn up and I would give and I would serve and I would contribute. And did my gender or sexual expression stop me from doing those things? No. Was I valued for that? Yes. So it goes back to this idea of if we can continue to highlight the importance of that collectivist and reciprocal approach to community Mm -hmm. and see the strengths of our own queerness to still turn up and have resilience and to value add to those particular areas of our community, that's when we can feel like we are valued 
irrespective, irrespective of our gender or sexual expressions. You know, one of the things that um, is interesting, and, and it's a call out from across the queer community, is like, you know, get to know somebody. Because if you don't, then you should, because it brings it, it makes it human. Mm. And also, um, you suddenly find that you might want to be an ally in the space. Um, if you're granddaughter or your grandniece or whoever or even your neighbor whatever it's about forming relationships and connecting with each other and finding our connections rather than differences completely 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 agree completely agree with that and i think that's that's where a lot of my work is is about being able to create a level of visibility and a level of voice as Mm. well and it's about then enabling people to interface directly with diversity. Yeah. A lot of the time people don't interface with diversity because they've never had that opportunity to do yeah. that. So I think once people are given the opportunity to meaningfully connect and engage, and exactly as you said, create a relationship yeah. with such areas of diversity, then that creates an inroad for people to go, Oh, yeah. that's what that's like. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't realise that. And then they start to make that connection. Yeah, yeah. And also the words. Language is a good place to start. Definitions. Totally. A quick example is I um, I started to uh, use a lot more gender-neutral uh, language. Um, and people have actually picked up on the way in which I do that. Um, and it, it flows quite naturally for me not to use gender-specific language. And the reason why that happened is because uh, three or four years ago, uh, one of my previous PhD students uh, is non-binary. So I I learnt, that was the first time I had had a non-binary student work with me uh, at that level. So I had to learn the process of not using gendered language. And it was through that experience. Look, I didn't get it completely right all the time, but it was through that lived experience of being able to interact in a meaningful way with somebody that I was able to then challenge myself to be better when it comes to my engagement with diversity. I had a conversation actually with a colleague last week that picked up that instead of referring to people specifically as their gender, I kept on saying they and them. And it threw them at first because they asked me, they're like, oh, is that their pronouns? And I said, oh, no, I just, I don't use gendered language. Uh, and they're like, oh, that's really interesting. And, and they were like, I should do that more because this will help even my own children to understand the way in which we privilege certain gender norms in the context of our language. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So for me, it has been a journey where I'm still learning, but I'm hopefully encouraging other people the way in which I talk, to also consider what that might mean for them. That's a really good exercise, actually, um, if anybody wants to give it a go. 24 hours a week, however long, um, try it. Give it a go. And um, it's, it's okay to self-correct, get it wrong, change course. But give it a go. Try it. Because then you realise how much um, we privilege um, the male in society. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like... It's he or, or it becomes a masculine thing really mm. easily. But try not doing it. It's amazing. I've always referred to my partner as they, <laughs> partly because I didn't, I wanted that ambiguity. Um, 
but um, it's interesting to then apply it to everything. It's quite hard. That's right, because it also then, you're right, because it then challenges the way in which we have constantly thought through a gendered point of view. Yeah. When you say they, them, it, it, it disrupts the way in which we might view something mm. or something, you know, the way in which people are located. Yeah. Yes, and people feel uncomfortable about it, but that's the idea is that you're trying to ensure that we're not... Pre- so I'll give you an example. I was... Um, uh, someone was talking to me, that's right, about the CEO of something. I was I was requested to do a keynote by this particular CEO and I wasn't able to do this particular keynote because I'm not available. And every time I keep on sharing this story to different people, they're like, oh, so what did he say? And I said, who? They said, the CEO. And I said, no, no, no. The CEO is actually female, but I'm intrigued that you thought it was a male because I didn't say their gender. Isn't that interesting? And it's interesting because I got that from quite a few of yeah. my female colleagues yeah. and friends when I was sharing that story. So you're right. It's almost like that default position that we go, a CEO must be a male. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's about, you, you get it. You, we are encultured beings, right? Yeah. And, you know, you can work out what your triggers are. It doesn't mean they go away. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And we're not perfect. And that's the idea also of cultural humility. Cultural humility encourages us to learn yeah. from even getting it wrong. So we might stuff up and go, oh, we've misgendered or oh, we've used a term that's not helpful when describing someone's sexuality or someone's education level or physical ability. But that's the point. You're learning how to then engage in a fluid and flexible way, knowing that that is part of your process of working in and across diversity. One of the key things that has helped me to redefine the way in which I engage with diversity is a concept called cultural humility. Oh, yes. Can you explain that for people? Hmm. So cultural humility strives to engage diversity in a fluid and flexible way. Traditionally, when it came to diversity, we would use the concept cultural competence this idea of becoming competent with other people, especially ethnics. So you do a two or three hour online course about working with Māori or working with First Nations Australians. And after the two or three hour online course, you became an expert about working with Indigenous communities, (laughs) which is completely false and incorrect. Yes. Cultural humility is all about being able to work alongside people in a curious way, where you are questioning your own contribution to the way in which diversity is not treated fairly, where you understand your role as a learner in engaging other people who are diverse. So rather than taking a set of rules or regulations around how to engage diversity, which is what you see in cultural competence, you learn to understand that diversity is fluid and flexible. And the best way to do that is to go in and be curious, Mm. to ask questions, to build a relationship with other people, to understand that there are certain ways in which people might do things based on their sexuality or their gender or their class or their religion. So rather than assume, you create a relationship. And that's really what cultural about. It's about creating a relationship with diversity and ensuring that you are also aware of how you contribute to that shared conversation through your own areas of diversity. So being a nice person to everybody else. 
Pretty much. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that feels like a really good recipe for like everybody you meet, right? That's right. Be curious. Don't assume that your world is the same. Yeah. Be curious about how that works and, and accepting of the differences that you have. You don't have to be sharing the same worldview in order to share the same space. Exactly. And that's where that notion of humility comes right. out. It's about getting over yourself, being yeah. humble, and allow a shared space to be created. Yeah. Yeah, it's a communication piece at heart, right? Which we're really bad at as humans. Totally. We don't get given that, you know, we haven't had these lessons at school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we're taught to categorise at school. <laughs> That's right. We're taught oh, yes. to label. We're yes. taught to label. Yes. We're taught to have this binary of you're this or that. Yeah. So it, it, it continues to be quite circular in the way in which we engage people. Yeah. We don't learn to just hold and share space yeah. and create a connection. And that's exactly what we've been talking about is this idea of if we're, if we're able to then meaningfully engage with diversity through a relationship, yeah. that's what can make a difference. Yeah. And it's, it's what, how do you generate the aha moment for people out there who are really new to this conversation? I think it's about having those critical conversations. I think sometimes people are a bit scared of this, this idea of critical thinking. And critical thinking, it's not about the opposite of something. It's about unpacking and being curious. I'm going to continue to use the word curious about why we do what we do when we do what we do. Yeah, what, 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 where did that come from, right? Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Rather than just sort of accept something as being gospel truth yes. or facts. I was uh, having a, a great conversation with a colleague uh, that was very involved, Professor Julie Leask, and uh, they're quite well known here in Australia for doing a lot of the stuff around uh, vaccinations, especially during wow. COVID. And uh, her and I were talking this morning about this idea of facts and this, this notion that there is a set of facts that we have to live by. Mm. But that's quite um, yeah, subjective, this idea of your facts are not necessarily my facts. So for me, it's more around what is people's realities what are the realities that we're living in and how do we understand those realities that might give us evidence to suggest that this particular way of doing things is helpful a lot of my ongoing work also is looking at this idea of what is helpful in the context of diversity that was a very gentle challenge about the idea of facts thank you (laughs) (laughs) and it's a very fair one i guess i'm Yes, okay. So is it better to, to then say, you know, there's some critical evidence that was just not given to us when we were educated about biological realities, mm. and that's very important to surface. And to get into a debate about my facts, your facts, is not helpful. Well, that's right, because it, you're right in what you just said, because I think the notion of facts, I mean, it's a bit semantics here, I do get that, but it's this idea of I think sometimes we enter the binary again about yeah, yeah, what is yeah. factual and what is not factual. Right and wrong, right? Exactly. Yeah. Are there particular resources that you've come across in your work that you think are helpful? I really love coming across resources, web-based uh, information where we are given stories mm. about people's experiences of being yeah. diverse. I love that. I came across actually a short clip a couple of weeks ago 
of a Tongan man that came out to his father as bisexual in New Zealand. And it was a lovely 10-minute piece that talked about him trying to understand what it meant to then come out, but also his father's reaction. It was very powerful. It, it moved me because I, I traditionally identify as bisexual. I now more identify as queer. And it was, it was I could see myself in that nice. piece. I could see myself even when I first came out to my Fijian father many, many years ago. So I love being able to come across resources where I can resonate and I feel seen in. But I also love coming across resources where I can learn yeah. from other people's experiences, uh, especially around their diversities and how that may play out for them. So again, resources that uh, promote those things like Sex in Space. <laughs> yes, thanks. Great resource. No, 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 really, very much so. It provides a platform for, for such diverse perspectives to play out. And yeah. I think that can be quite powerful in profiling and uh, making uh, reality these areas of diversity. I think the stories thing is so powerful because it allows emotional connection yes. across a very different groups of people. And um, your TED Talk was uh, your story. Mm. And I think that's a, a beautiful resource and we will flag it on the site and um, at the end of this talk we'll put it up um, because I would recommend it to anybody listening or watching. Um, as a, a beautiful story and a really great one to share if you're trying to start to have a conversation with other people in your life. You know, it's the sort of thing you can watch and then go, hey, what did you think of that? You know, open this door, open this space. You've done um, some pretty important work before your pandemic work's important as well, <laughs> but pretty important work within the homeless community. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? So prior to coming into academia, I was manager of a youth accommodation service in Western Sydney for homeless young people. And it's a similar sort of experience of people being or falling to the wayside, being in the margins, because they haven't been able to find a space to fit. Mm -hmm. And so we had young people who were diverse, gender diverse, um, and had sexually diverse and uh, in the community come and seek um, support in the, in our accommodation services. But we also had young people um, who had experienced areas of trauma as a result of different things happening in and across their communities. Um, so whether that might be based on coming from a low socioeconomic background or coming from an Indigenous background. Once again, those areas of diversity are diverse. And so we as a society continue to create these particular binaries associated with who people are. And I think it was through my experience of working in the homelessness sector, especially with young people, that I also learned the need to ensure that people had a safe space mm -hmm. to be themselves, a safe space to be able to come into and create a home uh, the, the place I looked after was a short-term accommodation service, so generally only up to three months. But it was about providing that space for them to feel like they belonged mm. to the communities in which they were located. Um, so a lot of that previous and ongoing work with young people is about being able to provide them with the opportunity to feel like they are part of something. That's so important, and it's you know, heartbreaking, really, because people don't generally have a baby and think, oh, I'm going to 
ignore them and let them go as they run mm. because they don't fit my idea of what they should be. And yet, you know, that does happen a lot. It's that box thing again. Right? It does. It does. And I think where it goes back to what you were saying there before around education and how we're educated or not educated to understand these areas of diversity. Mm. So it is. it was heartbreaking to have young people, queer young people, seek refuge because their families didn't accept them. Um, and that perpetuates the stigma and shame associated with being queer, being different. Mm. So I think for me, because I, you know, identify with the community myself and understand what it means to be different, I strive to continue to do the work, um, even as an ally in other areas of diversity, because I think people who are diverse know what it's like to be othered, mm. to be on the outside, to feel like you don't belong. So that's an encouragement for people that do feel like they don't belong, to know that you can make a difference through your difference. And also, you know, speaking, when I um, was working in mental health, um, my first board meeting, one of my board members was not thrilled to have me there. And she said, you need to understand that you are the colonial oppressor. You bring that into this room with you. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go away and work out what that means. A white girl from Devon, it was quite new to me coming to this part of the world. That was a long time ago. But I think the important thing in all of that is to understand what we bring in the room with us. And it's back to that being humble and understanding our assumptions and understanding what comes with us and, and what we have as our privilege. Um, and, you know, rather, I often hear people leaning into what they have as their challenges. And it's true, you know, uh, uh, we can all come and find ways to say, oh, I've experienced whatever, marginalisation, oppression. There's a lot, especially for women, it's pretty easy mm-hmm. stuff to put. But there's also the other side of that to say, you know, and, and how is it for you in the world? You know, what, what's going on around me? And part of being an ally is um, not, it's not about <laughs> me, you know. It's about actually being curious and saying, what is going on in your world for you? How can I support that, right? Totally. And, and I think that's where that Western and white way of looking at the world trips us up. Yeah. Because in a Western and white way of looking at the world, it very much is the individual, me, myself, and I. Yes. And we're taught just to think about what is in my own best interests. And we fail then to sort of think about others at times in the context of me, myself, and I. Yeah. And that's where I think we can learn a lot from First Nations communities, mm. locally, regionally, globally. The Tangata Whenua of Aotearoa, a lot of their cultural practice are collectively owned. Same with First Nations here in Australia, First Nations in the Pacific. Now, there are, of course, many differences across our cultures, but there are there is similarities around this collectivist way of looking at the world, that my well-being is your well-being, that I exist because you exist. So it's going back to this idea of how do we also learn from Indigenous cultures in Western modernity. That's that's a challenge and that's yeah. something that I continue to try and do across space and place. Yeah, and, and in a way bringing 
kind of coming back to the conversation around gender and sexuality <laughs> specifically, um, we were talking about a book the other day which is specifically written for the queer community, for kids. And um, who's it for? And it's it's for everybody. Like, if yes. you have this, it doesn't matter who you are, what your kids are, or where they land. It's making it part of a normal conversation. It's just part of who we are in the world to have these books in our space. It, you know, it's not because this lot over here needed it's because this is part of the lived reality it's part of the human experience that's right and that was actually one of the strengths that i heard time and time again from the palanoas the focus groups i was doing across the pacific islands was one of our strengths as queer people was love and tolerance for diversity because we're amongst that yeah wider society could learn a lot from us around loving self loving others loving diversity, knowing that we're different. I think that's so true. We could learn a lot from queer communities around that sort of default position of, of love. And I think we've still got a lot to learn in queer communities as well. We're not perfect, but you're right. I think it's, it's this inclusion stuff that I think we as queer people have generally tried to do. And one of the lovely things that hasn't somehow it's, it's held within um, the community in the Pacific is Fafainia. And um, I was talking with a couple of lads who were from a very um, working class area of Auckland, mm -hmm. nice rough boys. And mm -hmm. um, one of them's my partner. <laughs> <laughs> so I can say this. <laughs> and, um, it, and he was saying that at school, when they were kids, um, one of the kids was Fafaine. And it was just part of what was. It was yeah. just normal. There wasn't any lack of acceptance or problem with it. It was just part of what was. Yeah. And that was rather charming when it, they're also from a, a space that's radically kind of white colonised and a whole bunch of stuff going on at the same time. Yeah. And yet that thing held. What's been the strength of that and mm. how's that held? So the strength of that, and we see that similar with other Pacific cultures like uh, Bakasalewa, Lewa, and Leiti and Tongan, um, is that irrespective, again, of your gender and sexual expression, you matter. You're part of something more than just that. And that's what we see with the uh, Fafafine and Faitama, which is the male equivalent, um, is that irrespective of, of who and what your gender or sexual expression is, because you're part of something more, which is your village, your family, your community, we love you by virtue of being part of us, knowing that you also contribute to us based on being around. And so that's what has been the common denominator a lot of the time. It's not because, oh, you're that diverse person. It's, oh, you're that person that's from that family, from that village, mm. from that community. You're part of us. It's hard for uh, the, the mainstream model to get its head around. It is. Right? <laughs> That's right. It's just—it's basically saying, "Yeah, I get that you want to try and understand it in this way, but it isn't like that." That's right, because we have a lot of Pacific Indigenous concepts that talk about the embedded nature of reciprocal union. So, in a lot of the uh, Polynesian languages, we use the term "va," um, the sacred space between us, and that's where you operate. That we're constantly nurturing va. We're nurturing the sacred space. So my ability to hold and share space with you is always 
within the context of nurturing that space, being right in that space with you. I don't want to disrupt the VAR, the sacred space between us. Similar to in the Fijian language, we use concepts like verokovi, you know, respect for self and others, and dengravi, this reciprocal living way of looking at things. So even from a language or conceptual point of view, that's what underpins a lot of that reciprocal living in the Pacific. And that's what we've been brought up in. And that's how we see and view the world. And you're right. It is challenging for Western perspectives or Western modernity to understand that because of, again, the individualised way of looking at things. Radically individualised. And, and the very notion of having a name for the space, the closest you get really is to understand that um, two people aren't a relationship. The relationship is the product of what happens between two people. So yes. that's a space concept, but we don't do it particularly well. It's so interesting because I've never thought of it. So yeah, how do, how would you describe VAR? How do we do that within a Western framing? Maybe I think it's what right? you just said. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you're right because it, the whole thing of that relationship is, but but we don't. It's not an intuitive thing, is it? No. in a Western frame. No, you have to work to it, and, and you get and that and when it comes to working with people who are struggling in a relationship, that's actually quite helpful because you can then allow them to understand that there's this thing that they work on together and it's not you or me, it's what we do and we both have a role in this. And particularly then if there's children in this, <laughs> we both have a responsibility to mm. nurture and yep. manage this space between us. That's it, that's it. And I think that really is the underpinning of diversity for me is that when we create and nurture relationships, the VAR, and have Vera Colby, the respect for self and others because of Vengaravi, the reciprocal way of looking at the world, that's when we feel like we're part of something more than me, myself and I. A lot less lonely. Oh, very much so. Yeah. A lot less lonely, like less, lot less lonely and, a, and a lot less siloed and mm. binary because mm. we continue to perpetuate this idea of us and so the evidence would support um, a non-binary view of the world. <laughs> Very much so. The evidence would support that yeah. because we've seen that work so well for collectivist cultures globally. And we have an evidence base for understanding biological diversity mm. as well. And so um, if there's anything you take away from this, everybody, <laughs> it's that um, there is evidence for diversity and there are good resources to draw on to support you if you're trying to have conversations and create space, respectful VAR, mm. with people who have a different worldview to that mm. um, because there is work to be done and can't back away from that. That's right. Even whilst it feels a bit full on. That's right. And I think one of the other key things is that you don't have to, you know, agree and be best friends with everyone. But what we have to realise is that if you expect respect... Mm then that respect is expected back to others. Yeah. So we also need to understand, again, the reciprocal nature of the world in which we share and live. I got challenged with that the other day, actually, watching <laughs> this lady um, on a feed of some description who's made a decision to um, take up a role where it's very kind of 50s dress and hairstyle and at home, uh -huh. um, being the homemaker and having the partner who um, brings in um, the funds required to run the home and um, whom they would prefer to have made their decisions for them and whom they want to defer to to have decisions made and, and 
And I looked at this and I thought, and that's okay, because that's a choice they are making for themselves. It's just, let's not suggest that that's a worldview that's everybody else might want to jump into, right? Yeah, Yeah, that's right, that's right. I think when we universalise or make things a particular way of doing things, and this is what we all need to do, that's when we come. Yeah. So that's why it's important to be fluid and flexible. And very respectful. That's it. (laughs) We really hope you enjoy listening to this episode. If you want to find GOG online, you can find him on both Twitter and Instagram by searching for his name at GOG Revula. Before we sign off, we want to remind you to check out our book, available at sexandspace.com forward slash book, or just search on Amazon for The Organ Education Forgot. It's also available as a downloadable PDF for only 8 New Zealand dollars if you prefer a digital copy. Don't forget to leave a like, follow, comment, or review wherever you're tuning in from. Your support means the world to us. Until next time, safe travels and see you on the next episode.